Hi, this is Evan Bowles. And this is Ryan Hendricks, and you're listening to The Straight Flush, a podcast produced by the Virginia Water Environment Association. So Evan, tell us a little bit about today's episode. Absolutely. So today we are continuing the series on stormwater local TMDLs. And today we're focusing on uh, perspective on local TMDLs from Fairfax County. So uh, once again, our co-hosts are Laura Bendernagel with RK&K in their Washington, D.C. office, and John Schuler with Wolpert in their Chesapeake office. And today our guest is Heather Ambrose. She's the MS4 Permit Coordinator with the Department of Public Works and Environmental Services Stormwater Planning Division in Fairfax County, Virginia. So without further ado, we'll turn it over to our guest host. So I guess, you know, first things first, um, if you can introduce yourself, talk about your title. Yeah, sure, Laura. My name is Heather Ambrose. Uh, My official title is the MS4 Permit Coordinator. I work in the Stormwater Planning Division of Fairfax County, Virginia. Awesome. And I guess, um, you know, we're trying to really get to know all of our speakers and um, really dive in. So just tell us about yourself. Like, how did you really get into stormwater? Did you start in stormwater or somewhere else? And and how did you kind of find your way? Any cool projects that you've worked on? Yeah, no, I, I would love to give you a little bit of background. It's, it's not a very direct path <clears throat> to how I got to where I am today. But I study fisheries, biology, and graduate school out in the Pacific Northwest in Northern California. And so stormwater was kind of like a a second career. I, my, my my earlier career in education was in aquatic biology, and when I graduated from from school, I, I was I, I was offered an opportunity of a lifetime. I guess when you're that age, it seems it seems like it. I don't know if I'd still be able to keep it up today. But I went to work for the USGS for a couple of years, and then on with the Fish and Wildlife Service, working on similar projects. Once again, in the Pacific Northwest, I was supporting the USGS on a study looking at the legacy effects of road building in the uh, Redwood National Forest in order to harvest timber. And we were looking at amphibians and benthic macroinvertebrates and doing fish counts um, all to support you know, the effects of, of road building you know, decades ago. And then that kind of morphed into an opportunity with the Fish and Wildlife Service that was just amazing, where I was supporting a large-scale restoration project on the Trinity and Klamath rivers in that part of the state. So a little farther inland from the coast, but still in the northern part and absolutely beautiful, just uh, beautiful out there. And we were studying salmonid um, life cycles and looking at when we were surveying Pacific salmon. And so we were going out on whitewater rafts every day and doing our surveys on class two and three rapids in the rivers. And it was pretty amazing. Like I said, it's hard to think about doing that every day now. But we were looking for reds, which are the nesting areas for Pacific salmon. So we would count the reds to try to determine the uh, number of salmon that had returned to their natal streams to spawn. And so it was pretty amazing. And then at different times of the year, we were actually using large rotary screw traps on those same rivers to capture and release the juvenile salmon species that were traveling from their natal streams to the Pacific Ocean. So just kind of looking at the, the whole life cycle and the different parts of it um, to support some, like I said, really large scale river restoration projects, which are so different from what I'm more familiar with here in the urban environment of Fairfax County. So that kind of was where I started. And 
moved back to Virginia about 13 years ago and was in a lot of fisheries jobs and started uh, kind of my second career in erosion and sediment control in the stormwater field in Fauquier County, Virginia. And I moved on to Fairfax County about 11 years ago and I started out supporting their aquatic monitoring program and went on, went on to manage the uh, public stormwater facilities for the county and now coordinating the MS4 permit. So it's been a lot of fun. And I think that I'm learning so much in the position I am in now, uh, getting to network both internally and externally across Fairfax County and the whole Northern Virginia and really the entire state. That sounds so cool. Um, and you were mentioning just before that, you know, what you did sort of in the Pacific Northwest was kind of different than what you're seeing here. And I was just wondering if you can maybe describe more locally what the streams are like in Fairfax County, um, what your, you know, drainage areas are like. Is it very urban? Is it more rural? Right. Um, help us sort of visualize what what you're dealing with on a day-to-day basis in Fairfax. No, you're right. The difference is night and day. Those are extremely, extremely rural areas in Northern California. I mean, we travel a long distance. There would be, the land was almost pristine. There was a lot of legacy effects from, from logging, but other than that, just untouched um, areas of the, of the country. And Fairfax County is obviously a different story. We are a very populated region. We have... I know we're all in the middle of a census right now, but the last census, we were just over a million uh, folks in Fairfax County alone. Our, our streams definitely you know, paint that picture. We're urban. We have some suburban areas, but we have predominantly um, suburban for Fairfax County with some pockets of really urban areas like the Tyson's Corner development and the Reston area. Up until the 1950s, it's kind of interesting to note that Tyson's Corner was really a rural farming community itself. It was kind of centered around a general store at the intersections of Route 7 and Route 123. It's um, right outside of Washington, D.C. Since then, it is rapidly urbanized around the whole Tyson's Mall and the redevelopment. They're putting in new metro stops along that area, and it has changed so much in the last 50 to 70 years and obviously, the more impervious surface that you have, the more negative effects you're going to see in your water quality. And we do see that in Fairfax County. And we are aware that it's a challenge um, to make sure that the development is done in a sensible and manner to protect the natural resources in the county. So, Heather, can you tell us a little bit about local TMDLs in your area? How many, what kind of pollutants do you guys deal with? Our first local TMDL was back in, the EPA approved it in 2002. It was for fecal coliform in the Four Mile Run and Acatine Creek watersheds. Since that time, we have 13 EPA approved local TMDLs in place in the county. The impairments are for sediment. We call that the benthic or sediment TMDL. Bacteria, sometimes we call it E. coli. And then we have a PCB and a chloride local TMDL as well. Our most recent local TMDL being the chloride TMDL, which is in the Acatine Creek watershed. And that one's a little bit of a, it's unique to Fairfax County. I I don't think that it will stay unique to us. I think it's going to become more prevalent across areas of Virginia, um, as well as other surrounding states that see winter weather on a somewhat regular basis. 
and we are we are working on an action plan for the chloride TMDL. That will be a requirement of our next MS4 permit cycle. So just a little background, our MS4 permit expired in March of this year. So we are operating under an administrative continuance at this time. We foresee it being another year or two, at least, until we have another permit. So until we have another permit, I should say that our next permit will be will include a requirement to develop an action plan for the chloride TMDL. And we're generally given around 24 months to develop those action plans. And can you give us a little bit of background, too, on just where does the chloride come from? Um, you know, what are some sources? What does it do when it gets into streams? And, and kind of what are you noticing about that? Yes, definitely. The chloride chloride comes from several different sources. You can find it as a um, product of wastewater treatment plants. It can be found in fertilizers, water softeners. You often see it from septic systems. But I think by and large, the largest um, source of chloride is road salt that's used for de-icing and anti-icing during winter weather events. Um, Just one teaspoon of salt in a five-gallon bucket of water can be toxic to aquatic life. And we're actually starting to see our drinking water sources in Fairfax County um, have elevated chloride levels as well. It's also showing up in groundwater, which kind of explains how it gets to the drinking water. In in Fairfax County, the Occoquan Reservoir is one of our larger sources of our drinking water. So realizing that chloride is, is... creating problems amongst several different sectors right now. We are working with several stakeholders in the Northern Virginia region and beyond and with DEQ on what we've called the SAMS initiative. And the SAMS stands for Salt Management Strategy. And once again, this is really a proactive way to address the management of salt as we move into the future. We've done a lot of things just within Fairfax County alone, kind of trying to get to get ahead of the action plan and, and the best management practices. We are looking at ways to better track and report the amount of salt that we use. We're currently, um, I think we're getting quotes on different types of, of loader scales that we can track the amount of salt that goes out and the amount of salt that comes back in during a winter storm event. And We can also track this by the amount of salt that's used per site and hopefully by watershed. And and these newer newer types of scales have the equipment and and you're able to program them to track for these different types of of uses. We're doing a better job of calibrating all of our equipment, um, both for for road salt and for brine, which is the liquid that's put down um, on the highways often before a storm event occurs. We're looking at ways to better record the surface temperature. So the air temperature and the surface temperature can often be a couple degrees apart during a a winter storm event. And so I think it's just really important um, for folks to understand, our our, our applicators, when I say folks, our, our winter storm applicators to understand the difference and be able to really apply salt for the, the temperature of the surface of the road. Um, 
training is a big one. We're, we're putting a lot of, a lot of resources and time into training our, our, our snow operators for the winter, making sure they know how to use the equipment, they understand the importance of applying just the right amount of salt. We're rewriting a lot of our contract language. In the past, we've often paid contractors for the amount of chemical that they, or road salt that they actually apply. And we're really trying to discourage folks from over applying, over applying the um, road salt and taking into account better management practices. And, you know, so it's, there's this, I, I see it still, there's this public belief that in certain areas that if, if you don't, if you don't hear crunching under your feet, when you're walking that there enough chemical hasn't been applied. And that is definitely not the case. Like the more you apply, as I said, does not mean the snow is going to melt any faster or any, any better than if you had applied less. So I think that's, that's where the public awareness piece comes in and the education. And I think that's the hardest component of this as well. And also just getting people to stay home, you know, for a period of time after an event, if they can, so that, the chemicals that are put down do have time to work. Then, and then also for folks to realize that more isn't better. It's worse, obviously. It's 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 going to cause more trouble to their cars, to the roadway, to the drinking water, and you know to the the streams and the aquatic life. And do you think all of these efforts that Fairfax County and I assume the the other regional partners? Do you think all these efforts are helping so far, even prior to having action plans? And and do you think that they will ultimately be successful in, in improving water quality? So I definitely think that we will ultimately be successful in improving water quality. I, a lot of this is fairly new. A lot of this, these proactive approaches are really just starting to take place. So I think time will tell. I, I think it's really too early to, to measure the effects of a lot of these new things that have gone into place just in the last year or two. But I do think that they're going to be successful. I know, uh, you know, based on other localities in Northern states and in Canada and even other parts of the world that have been dealing with chloride TMDLs for years and years, uh, we're taking a lot of cues from them and, and following advice and they have been successful. So I would hope that we would be able to follow suit. I just wanted to follow up on um, something I think you said to us in a, in a prior conversation, which was you know, once the salt gets into the stormwater and the stormwater passes into the system, it's really hard to get it back out, right? So yes. are, are all of your BMPs that we're talking about really kind of source control? Or have you found any BMPs like more traditional, like maybe bioretention or something else like that, where you've been able to get the salt out after it's gone into the stormwater? Yes, we we do. Yes. So that's a good example. Bioretentions. There are other more traditional BMPs that we've been using for years that will remove some of the salt from the system, but a lot of the times it will just infiltrate in, into the groundwater. It's like you said, Laura, once, once salt goes into solution, which is really easy to do, it's nearly impossible to take it out. So yes, we can try to capture it so that it doesn't run off into the stormwater directly into the streams. Uh, and we do have success with that, but I think, some of these other approaches will hopefully help us be more successful. Do you have any advice or things that you've done specifically that you think would be um, something that could be replicated in other places or something that you want to highlight here? Yeah, definitely, Laura. We have 
talked a lot about the chloride TMDL um, for the past few minutes. But as I mentioned earlier, we have a few other impairments in Fairfax County as well that have TMDLs. I mentioned PCBs and I mentioned bacteria. And while we are really trying to push outreach and education for the for the salt piece, for many years now, we've been educating the public on proper ways to dispose of dog waste because that is a primary source of bacteria in our streams. Wildlife waste is as well, but that one is just, there's not a whole lot you can do about that. But one thing that we've done to really reach out to dog owners in Fairfax County is we insert educational flyers telling dog owners the proper way to pick up and dispose of their pet waste when we mail out dog license renewals every year. If you if you have a dog, then you're supposed to pay a, a license fee every year and the county mails those out. So we put a little note in those now. I think we started this a couple of years ago and it seems to be really successful. So that's one way we're trying to really target a particular audience. Yeah. I guess besides public outreach. Is there anything like any projects that you guys are doing to remediate some of that or? Our projects really focus on mainly sediment. So we are able to leverage our projects for both our Chesapeake Bay TMDL and our local sediment TMDLs. And that's really helpful. Um, And that's where a lot of our, our projects are geared towards reducing nitrogen, phosphorus and sediment. Yeah, so tell us a little bit more about that, because I think that's really awesome that you're able to use the same projects to sort of handle multiple different TMDLs, not just the Chesapeake TMDL, but also a lot of some of your local TMDLs. So how does that work, and can you maybe talk about some of those projects? We have found in the county that stream restorations give us the biggest bang for our buck, and they can also be one of the more controversial projects that we install, but we... We, we get the most benefits from those projects in regards to sediment reduction. So an example would be um, our Flatlick branch runs um, through the Cub Run area of Fairfax County. And we've done several stream restorations along, along that stream. And the most, well, phase two, we just finished phase three, but in phase two, we, will, we were able to remove over 91,000 pounds of sediment per year from that stream restoration. To compare it with a, a, a stormwater pond retrofit, one, one of the more advanced retrofits that we did, which is an, an enhanced extended detention dry pond retrofit, we were, we're getting about 9,700 pounds per year. So you're comparing you know, 9,000 to 91,000 pounds per year of sediment removal. So your stream restoration is clearly giving you, it, it costs a lot more, it's a lot more, um, resources allocated to it, but you get a lot more reductions at the same time. Um, And you had called it benthic, um, which in my mind is, you know, talks about or speaks to like critters that live in the creeks. And I was just wondering, is, do I have that mixed up? Like, is benthic actually more related to sediment or how are those two related to each other? So when we talk about a benthic community, that's generally the community of critters that lives on the bottom of a stream bed. So they live under the rocks you know, on the, on the, in, the, in the surface of the, of the soil there, and they are often affected by sediment. So we use that, we do use that term interchangeably for the local TMDL. And I, I'm trying to remember what's officially on the TMDL. I think it's benthic, but I think there's been a big push to start calling those sediment TMDLs. But either way, sediment is the pollutant of concern, but it, it largely affects the benthic community. 
So Heather, what's your take on the future of local TMDLs generally? What, do you see them being utilized by DEQ more or less? Do you think they'll be more or less strict than they are now? I think it makes more sense. And I, I think the conversation has been started with DEQ on looking at a more holistic approach to impaired waters. So instead of going out and developing a separate TMDL for every individual waterway that's impaired for sediment or for bacteria, trying to come up with a, a more holistic approach to how to tackle all of those at once. And that's kind of what the SALT strategy is trying to do. It's trying to come up with a, a suite of best management practices that can be used for anyone who's has a waterway impaired for, for chloride. And I think that approach makes more sense. I think economically it makes more sense. And, and as far as like time resources, time will tell, but I, I do see it going in that direction. And I, I think that makes sense. So to wrap up, um, we're just curious about your thoughts on what you think uh, the water, how the waterways in Fairfax County are changing, you know, from today and onward. Um, are you seeing them get any better in any ways? Uh, do you think that they're continuing to degrade in some ways? Um, maybe you can provide some data or, you know, just a sense of what's going on and kind of the trajectory of the, the waterways in your in your region. Yeah, definitely, Laura. We we are very hesitant to make any sort of long-term trend analysis at this time. We have gathered several years of data through our USGS gauges and our in-house monitoring. But you really need, I mean, a good 10 years of data to start making analyses across time. But I will say that we are starting to see an increase in the, diverse, in the diversity of the more tolerant macroinvertebrates. You know, whether that's good or bad, more tolerant means they are able to withstand you know, harsher conditions and, and um, more pollutants. But at the same time, we are starting to see an increase in the more tolerant species. And we are seeing, I think, importantly, significant reductions in the sediment, phosphorus, and nitrogen in regards to our Chesapeake Bay TMDL. I think we've made great strides. Things are always changing. I think the next thing that's on a lot of people's minds are this climate and the intensity of storms that we're seeing over the last couple of years, the frequency of the intense storms and and the effects that those are having on communities has been has been terrible. Um, especially, you know, in our region, we're getting these pockets, these little areas where we get these pockets of you know intense storms. And and how do we how do we design our our infrastructure and our our standards for stormwater facilities to withstand these these high intensity storms is, is a huge focus. So I think that's been definitely a shift and then how do we how do we do that and at the same time address water quality so i i can see and i've been i've been on several of these conversations in the past couple of months how do you combine meeting your water quality requirements which are really what tmdls are geared towards and addressing water quantity at the same time especially in these highly developed impervious neighborhoods where there's not a lot of places to put the water unless you put it underground so I can definitely see see conversations and strategies going in that direction. Uh, do you have any advice for other municipalities that are facing a uh, TMDL that could be dealt with locally with a uh, you know salt management strategy 
um, do you do you have any advice for working with neighbors uh, to come up with those kinds of solutions? I definitely think that the getting the right people at the table is important, and I think the Sam's initiative has done a great job of getting stakeholders together. So, you know, we're working with VDOT because they're obviously concerned with the public safety aspect of chloride, and we're working with different uh, environmental stewardship groups. We're working with commercial applicators. That, that's that's an important one, too, to try to engage in the conversation. And I think just getting everyone at the table is, is something that I would recommend because everyone is not going to agree. And obviously you're going to, you know, come at it from a different angle and, and every, it's going to be really hard to find that balance. And it, it has been really hard with stock management strategy to find that balance. So I think it's important to work as a, as a, as a network and a regional network and come together and try to hash it out. And so you mentioned that there's like a document coming out in December of this year. And there's a draft, I believe on, I believe the draft is on DEQ's webpage. It's just called the Sam's toolkit. Um, it should be finalized. I think our final meeting is coming up in December, and then they're going to kind of sign and seal it. Awesome. Uh, note to our listeners, the Virginia Salt Management Strategy, or SAMS Toolkit, has been published since we recorded this podcast, and you can find it by searching online for Virginia Salt Management Strategy Toolkit. Heather, thank you so much. We really enjoyed having you as a guest, and um, we look forward to talking with you more at the Q&A session. Great. Thank you. Another great conversation on these stormwater local TMDLs. Always fascinating to hear how the local municipalities are handling it, especially the large municipalities like Fairfax County. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, we would uh, we want to thank our co-host again, Laura Bendernagel and John Schuler, um, for, for hosting this. And we also want to t- uh, thank Heather Ambrose for participating in today's podcast. So that's it for this episode. Um, if you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite pod- podcast platform. And if you're a VWA member and have an idea for an episode, make sure you contact us at podcast at VWA.org. Thanks again for listening to The Straight Flush. Thanks. The Straight Flush is a proud production of the Virginia Water Environment Association and its members. This podcast is co-produced and edited by Ryan Hendricks and Evan Bowles, with theme music composed by Evan Bowles and art by Corey Bowles. The content contained in the podcast you just heard reflect the views and opinions of the podcast participants and do not reflect the views of the Virginia Water Environment Association or associated affiliates. The Straight Flush is presented for entertainment purposes only and is not intended to serve as a basis of any action or recommendation. Thanks for listening to The Straight Flush.